The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of James. James chapter 1 is where we'll spend our time this morning. Isn't it good to start the service in such a way? Um, I, I was walking back out. In fact, I was jogging back around thinking I wasn't going to get around in time to get up here. And uh, I passed by one of our security team members uh, who was watching. He's watching the front, but he's watching on the screen and just, just in tears, just weeping at, um, at the grace of God, the picture that we just saw. It's good. It's good to have uh, the ordinances of the church celebrated today in here. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together in just a little bit. And uh, so our service is sort of flipped. We're going to do a whole lot more singing on the back end than we normally do. But we're going to spend a little bit of time in the middle here on the Word of God. The Word is life to us. We need it. And so that's where we want to be. James, we've been walking verse by verse through this book. And uh, we, last week, James has said to, to these members of his congregation that have been dispersed to various regions, various places all around that region that are living in very different circumstances where they are not received. The gospel is not seen as friendly. It is, it is a threat to so much of the lifestyle, the culture that so many of these believers are now living in. And he has, his great concern is the concern of a pastor wanting them to, to be able to thrive where they are, to be able to live for the Lord and not back down, not to waver, not to walk away from the faith. And so James is writing to them as a pastor with some great words of warning and some great words of admonition. And last week he says to them, or he said to them, don't be deceived. Where you are in the middle of suffering, when trials come, count it all joy, but there's a temptation in the middle of the, that to be deceived, to think that God is somehow doing this, that God is somehow just playing with you, that you were lied to somehow. And he tells them, don't be deceived. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no shadow of turning. He's constant. He says today to them, there's a way that you need to be warned that you can be deceived, so don't be deceived. But he's going to say to them today, the very first words of this passage, how they can know. How they can know that they are on solid ground, that they are sure that they are on bedrock of the gospel, and that they are living their lives not as a waste, but in this temporary existence headed to the final ushering in of the kingdom of God. So I want us to look at this today from a pastor's heart to his congregation, even though he's not with them. This is what he says, James chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. He says, Know this, my beloved. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This morning, I want us just to walk through this, these few verses together. This is what we do most of the time, but I just want to make you keenly aware that there's no, there's no gimmicks, there's no tricks. This is not me trying to entertain you. We want to open the word of God as the word of God and let it speak. And so this morning, let's walk through these verses together. The first thing that James tells his congregation is, be quick to hear and slow to speak. Be quick to hear and slow to speak. Uh, we're not born as good listeners, are we? None of us are born as good listeners. Uh, you ever tried to reason with an infant? 
crying all night, you are exhausted, you want to go to sleep, walk into their nursery, pull them out of their crib and say, now listen, I'm really tired and it would help me out a lot if you would just tone it down. Just go to sleep. It's nighttime. Will the baby listen to you? No, you're going to have to speak a lot louder than that and he still won't listen to you because he or she is hungry or they are wet or they are crying for no apparent reason and you can't reason with them. They don't listen. We're not born as good listeners. But we quickly become good talkers, don't we? Parents, young parents, how, how long did you yearn for them to say their first word and you would get down in their face and you'd get down on their level and you would say, Dada, Dada. And they would look at you with this sort of, the way a dog looks at you sometimes, sort of cocks its head to the side, you know, and Dada or Mama, right? Or Gamecock, right? Or, <laughs> or Go Tigers, you know, or something, you know, and you're hoping they're going to have this, these first words, right? But how long does it take to get over that desire for them to speak? Because when they start, well, they don't stop, right? They, why this? Why that? What's that thing do? Where are we going? Are we there yet? What are, you know, it's just constant, right? So we're not born as good listeners, but we quickly become good talkers, but we should increasingly, over our lives, learn to talk less and to listen more. And this is James' point. You've heard it said, it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. Uh, I think there's a lot of truth in that, whether that was Mark Twain or Abraham Lincoln or someone else that said that. Nobody really knows who was the first person who said that. I think I know their source because there are lots of verses in Proverbs that sound very similar. Proverbs 17, 28 says, Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. So you may think, I'm not very intelligent. I say things, get myself in trouble a lot. Best thing to do, don't say much. They will think that you are brilliant. You are contemplating things, that you are a wise person. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on this, this chapter, says, the devotional prayer of the modern man is, Lord, speak to me. you got 60 seconds, right? And Kent Hughes goes on to say there is no time to hear what the Lord says and to be still and know that he is God. Jewish rabbis, when they considered these verses, they said it well as well when they said, Men have two ears but one tongue, that they should hear more than they speak. The ears are always open, ever ready to receive instruction, but the tongue is surrounded with a double row of teeth to hedge it in and, and keep it within proper bounds. I think that's pretty good. Lots of Christians and lots of, lots of churches develop reputations for not being those that are slow to speak and quick to listen. Instead, they are churches and believers who develop reputations for being quarrelsome. You know churches like this. You hear about them in the community, and you think, that's not a, you, all kinds of things going on over there at that church, and we don't want any churches to be that way, but largely I would tell you that it happens because they have not heeded James' advice. Largely the congregation is made up of people who are quick to speak, slow to listen, and therefore they are quick to anger. 
And everyone seems to be angry because everyone wants to be heard. We've all had the experience of talking with someone and thinking, they're not listening to me. You ever had that experience? Their eyes drift. They may nod every now and then, but you think, they're not listening to me. Uh, Recently or this week, someone sent me some kind of thing on the Internet that was funny text messages. And I don't look at a lot of this stuff, so if you send it to me and I don't reply, that's probably why. I just don't read a lot of it. But this one was pretty funny. This these parents were texting back to their teenage daughter, uh, make sure you make your bed today. No response. Make sure you empty the dishwasher today. No response. Make sure you vacuum the living room today. No response. Your dad and I have decided to buy you a car. Really? That's awesome. To which the parents said, just making sure you were listening. We're not buying you a car. We've all had that experience where someone is slow to hear and quick to speak. But James says that we should increasingly over our lives be those that are quick to hear, slow to speak. Because when we are, then we will naturally be slower to become angry. Verses, the last part of 19 into verse 20, he deals with this issue of anger. The ESV Study Bible footnote on this verse says, Lack of listening combined with lack of restraint in speech leads to ill-tempered action. And isn't that true? How many times have you flown off the handle because you didn't have all the details? You didn't pick it all up and there was a misunderstanding. And you flew off because you thought it was one way. But if you'd have just been slower to speak and quicker to listen... It would have turned out differently. Now, when James here says, be slow to anger, is all anger wrong? No. There's some anger that is righteous. In fact, the book of Ephesians in chapter 4 tells us, be angry and do not sin. We should, in, we should indeed definitely get angry over the things that cause God to be angry, right? The injustices of the world. But if we're honest... Most of our anger is not this justified, righteous anger. Instead, it is quick-tempered rage. It's the anger of man, verse 20 says, and it's often the result of what Augustine used to call inordinate affections, misplaced love. Think about it this way. Most of the time when you get angry, most of the time, is it over the things that truly anger God or is it over something that's really more about you? Most of the time we fly, maybe this is me talking, but most of the time when I get angry, if, I, if I'm quick to anger, I'll find that it's because I was rejected or that I was denied or that I was, in my mind, disrespected or even that I was inconvenienced. You've heard me often talk about drivers who frustrate me. And I will continue to say as a public service announcement, if you're going to drive slow, you should get in the right lane, Right. So that's just, that's just a pet peeve of mine, but it's, it's law, but, you know, it's your prerogative. Do whatever you want. But I find that I've, I get angry most of the time over things that are against me. And they're not, it's not righteous anger, but the thing about anger is it always seems justified in the moment, doesn't it? Well, yes, I'm angry, and I'll tell you why I'm angry. And it doesn't matter what it is. We can justify it in the moment. Because it always feels right. But most of the time when we fly off the handle, it's mostly when we have been wronged. And in that moment, who are we showing love for? 
God and the things that he loves or for ourselves? I would say that most of the time it is never uh, or not, it's, it's rarely ever that we are angry over things like Boko Haram kidnapping all those girls uh, in uh, Nigeria and selling them into uh, sex trade industry and, and, and other things. It's rarely when we get angry over babies being aborted inside their mother's womb because some abnormality showed up on a test. It's rare when we get angry over those things. When we, we don't get angry over the fact that thousands of kids die every day in parts of the world from simple things like diarrhea. We get angry over traffic. We get angry over the waiter. My glass has been empty, right? Most of the time, that anger is not righteous anger. It is anger that is a self-loving anger. James here says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Our anger, even when it is directed at true injustice, we need to realize some things about it. That our anger cannot ever change the other person. Our anger is never going to give that other person a new heart. We can't produce the righteousness of God in them. Regardless of what it is, our anger toward them is not going to produce that. The only one who can ever produce that in someone else is God alone. God's the only one who says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and put a new heart within you. Your anger, while we should be angry over the things that anger God, is never going to change the other person. Only God can do that. So some of you are justified in your anger thinking, this needs to happen. Someone needs to tell them, right? Which brings us to the second thing we've got to realize is that, that our anger doesn't vindicate us. One of the problems with our anger is that it always seems, as I said earlier, justified in the moment. But whose job is it to bring about vindication? Whose job is it to bring about vengeance? Hasn't God alone said, vengeance is mine? We certainly should be angry about those things that make God angry, but we have not been made agents of vengeance. Instead, the Bible tells us that we have been made ministers of reconciliation. So if you're flying off the handle and using it as an excuse, if you're an agent of God bringing about righteousness in the world, making the world a better place, James tells you that you're righteous. Your anger can never bring about the righteousness of God. It doesn't ever make all things ultimately right. Only God can do that, and only God will one day do that. So James says, first off to them, be quick to hear, be slow to speak. And then he says, be slow to anger. And then in verse 21, he says to them that they need to put some things away, that they should put some things away. He says to them, therefore, put away all filthiness. The imagery here is of stripping off dirty clothes. How many mothers in the room have ever had to stop your child at the door and take all their clothes off right there at the door because they were just so dirty you couldn't let them in the house. How many mothers? Just raise your hands. Mom's in the room. Yeah, see, the, the moms love to, to raise their hand on that one because, you know, you just know. And you look at your boys and you think, how, how can they get that dirty, right? I, maybe, sometimes maybe it's girls. I don't know. But I heard Al Mohler say that you don't understand. You'll never understand their mind because they're trying to get into things that you're trying to stay out of. 
And it just seems to be opposite. But that's the truth. You've, you've stopped them at the door and you've, you've pulled these clothes off of them and sent them straight to the bath and thought, I don't know whether to, to wash this or to burn it or throw it away. I don't know what to do with this, right? It's the imagery here. James says to them, be quick to hear, be slow to speak, be slow to anger. Therefore, put away all filthiness. It's the imagery of stripping off these clothes so that you can just get rid of them. We don't want to have anything to do with the moral filth of this world. And to some of you, you hear a preacher stand up and talk about the moral filth of this world, and it just sounds like preachers speak. But you do understand that there is a God who is on his throne in heaven who is indeed holy, and that he has commanded us to be holy. And I'm not prescribing for you, if you don't know Christ, to pull yourself up by your own strength and seek to be holy. But for those of us who know Christ and are resting in him, We've been commanded to not simply rest in him and live however we want, but to rest in his unchanging grace, knowing that he takes our sin as far as the east from the west, but then strive to be holy. We've been commanded to do that. James here says, take it off, put it away, all this filthiness. He's simply teaching what others in the rest of the Bible have also taught. Paul in Romans 13, verses 12 through 14 says, Look, the night is far gone. The day is at hand, which means Jesus could come back at any moment. Paul thought it could happen at any moment then. It hasn't happened for a couple thousand years, but you and I are no, we don't have to shy away from that at all either. It could happen in a moment. The day is at hand. Paul says, So then, let us cast off. There's that language again, the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I love that language there of not making any provision for the flesh. In Colossians, Paul also says there in chapter 3, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were, when, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Notice in both of these, in all three of these, Paul in Romans, Paul in Colossians, James here in his, his letter to his church members, he's writing to believers. He's not writing to lost people, telling them this is how you are saved. He's writing to believers who are saved. You once walked in these things, but now that you have put on the Lord Jesus Continue to put him on and give no provision to the flesh. Live holy lives. James here in chapter 1 says, Therefore, put away, take off all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Well, what in the world does rampant mean? What well, means that, that this taking off of sin and making no provision for the flesh is going to be a lifelong battle. 
You're never going to get past this until He comes again. Rampant is, is from the same root word as rampage. It literally means let loose. And what that means is, for you and I, is that this world is bombarding us with temptation all around us. Satan, the enemy we talked about last week, is bombarding us. He's like a lion prowling around seeking whom he may devour. Our flesh still has not been fully redeemed, and it is, has a tendency toward these things still. Our nature has been changed, but we still have this flesh that one day... These bodies will be redeemed and we will have glorified bodies like Christ and sin and death and suffering and all that will be put away. But until then, we have these common three enemies that assail us from every direction. Listen to how Douglas Moo in his commentary put this. He says, putting off sin involves a fight. It involves a fight against a foe that takes many different forms. Like an army with many soldiers, sin attacks us persistently and in many guises. Knock down one sin, and another quickly arises to take its place in the spiritual conflict in which we are engaged. Here I picture the old Bruce Lee movies where Bruce Lee's in the middle of all these that are attacking him, and he's picking them off one by one, but he's got to keep spinning and moving because it's going to continue to attack. If you're not a martial arts guy or a Bruce Lee guy, just think about your your flower beds or, or your landscaping. Have you ever seen a bad year for weeds? No such thing, right? It can be a bad year for pecans. We had a bad year for pecans last year because we had so much rain, right? Pecan, they just didn't produce last year. It can be a bad year for lots of things in your garden, but weeds are going to grow, right? And here's, here's the picture. Sin is like weeds in the garden of your life. And just as soon as you think you've got this thing under control, there's another one that popped up. And you've got to continually stay on those. For, for years now, I have, I have decided, I've, I've fought this battle. Yes, I need to weed eat. I need to run the weed eater. You know, it's, I need to do that. I don't like doing it. I, I used to try to do it in shorts. My legs would stay cut up. And so I'd go out there in jeans, and I sweat like crazy. And so I'm just hot and miserable. Well, I finally gave in to F.E.'s philosophy. You just spray it. Right, F.E.? Around the border and the edges, you just spray it. So Lana, that, she gets out there and she sprays. And, and we, have, we have killed, we have nuked everything that I used to have to weed eat. It's good, right? This is the picture here. So we must stay on top of the sin in our life. It's rampant wickedness, and we must put it away. We're never going to do this in complete perfection as much as we work to put away all filthiness, there will be some, some days when we do have accidents. It's what we like to call them, accidents. We'll look down and we will think we've put away all the dirty clothes and we've, we've, we're, we're now wearing spotless white, but we'll never be wearing true spotless white until that day, right? And some days we'll look down and we will have spilled something on our shirt, It's going to be this constant taking off, putting away this filthiness. We're not ever going to do this perfectly, but we should be taking drastic measures to be pure. That's why Jesus used this language in Matthew 18. Jesus said, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, then tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Jesus tells us we should, as believers, as those who are saved, forgiven, adopted into the family of God, that we don't have a pass, but we should indeed still be taking drastic measures to emulate our Father, to be holy because He's holy. So what this means is, James says, the way you do this is when you receive the implanted Word. Because we would come to this, this part of the, the sermon and you would say, Pastor, that sounds well and good, and I want to go out and do this. I want to keep putting this off, but, Pastor, I don't know how. I mean, how do I take these drastic measures? Pastor, where do I find the, the motivation to keep doing this? Because it just seems some days it, I'm defeated and it just seems like it's never going to end. So, Pastor, how do I get the motivation to keep warring for holiness? In a culture that seems to be constantly shifting, we need to say, well, what are those things that need to be put away? Our culture continues to try to move the line of morality, and we better be sure that we have a sure word from God. Because increasingly in the days to come, we will be forced to face the question of, will we stand where God has drawn the line. James says to them, receive the implanted word. In the parable of the sower, there's, there's seed that's scattered. It falls on different types of soils, and, and there are different results from each of them. But one thing's true about each of those different soils. There's a sower. The sower has to sow. The seed must be implanted in each of them. Without the seed from the sower, there's just a path. Without the seed from the sower, there's just some rocky ground. There's just some ground that's overthrown, overgrown with, with thorns. And there's just some good soil there. But without the sower and the seed, they're really nothing more than that. But when the sower implants the seed, there is potential for sprouting. So it is with the Word and us. God is the one, we looked at last week in verse 18, who implants the Word in us and brings us forth. You and I are dead in our sins and trespasses, but one day we hear the seed of the gospel cast into our life, and we're made alive to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we see our sinfulness and we know that we're lost and we need to be saved. And Jesus has come to be our substitute, take our place and offer forgiveness to us. God is the one who brings us forth. God's the one who also continues to plant his word within us. We sometimes treat this word as if it's the gospel. Yeah, I did that. We have a tendency to look at these children who walked through this, this, these waters today and say, oh, yeah, they did that. These kids, many of them made professions of faith months, even years ago. But we've watched 
And we've made sure to see that there are, there's fruit of the Spirit in their life. The Word, the Gospel, is not something that they just did one day and now they've gone on, but instead that it has taken root and it's producing a harvest in their life and they continue to look for His Word. You need to know that God, if you're a believer, continues to sow His Word in your life. Daniel Doriani in his commentary said, James does not tell believers to put off sins and to put on certain virtues. That's what Paul did, right? Paul said, put these things off and put on this. But James doesn't do that. James doesn't say, put these things off, now put on this. Instead, James says, put these things off and receive the implanted word. Doriani goes on and he says, this is how transformation occurs. The implanted word takes root deep within us and transforms us. It brings conviction of sin and assurance of mercy. It instills faith and creates new life so that good fruit inevitably follows. You want to know how you can grow in the Lord? You want to know how you can be sure that as you live your life and you go through weeks and months and years in this life, how you can know that you're not wasting your life? Continue to receive the implanted word. You want to know how you can remain free from being deceived, receive the implanted word. The, the implanted word, the, just the, the, the terminology, the phrasing there implies that this is not something within every human being. We hear people say, I believe humans are basically good. Scripture tells us we're not. Scripture tells us that because of sin, we are wicked. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Scripture tells us that we're not basically good. Scripture tells us that we are, to our core, bad. We need the Word to be implanted within us. And thank God for the gospel, and thank God for the gospel to to continue to be sown into our lives. He tells them, receive the implanted Word. And he says so to, to do so with meekness. Now, you and I in this culture, as men in this room, we hear a word like meekness, and it's the last thing we want to be. We don't want to be meek people. We don't want to be meek men because we, we, we associate meekness with being mild, being weak. Meekness is weakness, we say. But here, meekness is not weakness. James says, receive the implanted word with meekness. It is, you've got all kinds of other options. The easy thing would be to follow the world, to do what the world tells you to do, to go where the world wants you to go. The strong thing to do is to be meek and submit yourself under the authority of God and His Word. Your flesh will rise up and war against this Word if you let it. And in so doing, you are merely re- you're, you're not merely rebelling against some abstract document. When we talk about the Word, we're not talking about just another book on a shelf. But this is the very Word of God. You're not just rebelling against some abstract document. You're rebelling against God Himself. True believers, though, demonstrate that they are not on the throne of, of their lives, but God is. They have, they, they have been and they are being changed by God's Word, and they know it. What this means for us, church, is that it, even when we don't like what it calls for, it's authoritative over us. You ever, you ever come across something in Scripture and you think, well, I, don't, I don't know. 
You ever come across something like that? If, if, if not, then you're either not reading your word or you're not being honest with me now. Because you will come across things in the word and you will think, I don't think I can do that. I don't like that because your flesh is going to well up within you and want that thing that Scripture tells you that you should stay away from. Or your flesh is going to well up and say, I don't want that thing that the Scripture tells you you should pursue. But the Word of God's authoritative over us. And we don't get to tell God what His Word should say. We don't get to define marriage. We don't get to do those things because God's already spoken. Even, even when you don't understand why he says those things, what it means to receive the implanted word with meekness is, God, I don't understand why, but God, I know that you're good. I know you're my authority, you're my Lord, and so God, I don't have to know why. I'm going to submit and I'm going to glad, gladly follow you. And James ends with this. He says, receive with meekness, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Occasionally, someone will tell me at the end of a message, they'll come up and they'll say something to the effect of how the message helped them or send an email or a text and how the message really just spoke to them. And, and they'll say, you know, how did you, how did you know? How did, it seemed like you were talking just to me. And, and here's the truth. There is no version of the gospel NSA. We're not following you around with a drone, watching your life so that I have fodder for sermon material and I can sort of key in on you without you even knowing it. That's not not what we do. You know what happens? God in his sovereignty knows us better than we know ourselves. And he puts in his word what we need. And so when I stand up here, or Greg stands with the youth, or your Sunday school teacher stands with you, and we simply redeclare to you the Word of God, you know what happens? God's wisdom comes out in your life. It's the Word of God that's able to save your souls. Doriani, I'll give you one more quote from him, and then I'll, I'll, I'll be through. Doriani says, it saves souls. It saves from the soul's past sinfulness. It saves in the soul's present battle with sin, and it saves for the soul's future life with God. Church, I would tell you the greatest thing that you and I can do is to receive the word. It doesn't mean that we simply give a nod to it. It doesn't mean that we simply give a vocal amen to it. But instead, it means that we embrace it. We receive it. We take it into our lives by the power of the Spirit of God, and we we seek to live it out, knowing we will never do it perfectly, but we do it in the power of the Spirit of God who calls us to these things. He calls us to the things that he calls us to, and he empowers us to those things as well. So you and I pray that we would receive the Word of God. Now, how do you do that? You do that with what you're doing right now. You listen. You're, you're, you're quick to listen. You're slow to speak. It's good. You, people would say today, it's not in my notes, but let me just say this in, in finishing up. People say today that this mode is outdated, that preaching is outdated, that we shouldn't do this anymore, that instead we should do things like show videos and that we should have interaction with the congregation. 
And there are some settings where that would be well and good, perfectly fine. But there is still something to be said for a man of God called by God standing up and saying to you, thus saith the Lord. So be quick to hear. But don't just be quick to hear in this moment and then move past this moment to lunch and whatever else the day brings to you. Be quick to hear and be quick to think over these things beyond this moment. To put into practice the things that are called for here. You don't have to simply receive the implanted word one time a week when it's preached to you from this pulpit. But instead, you can receive the implanted word when you, in the quietness of your own home, sit down with your Bible and open it up and ask the Spirit to speak to you from the Word of God. Read it. It doesn't have to be much. It can be a verse or two. Just read it. And then ask God to just allow you to savor it and to soak in it and for him to show you the truth in it and to change your life through it. You could be riding in your car on the way to work. You can get all sorts of apps where you can have the Bible coming through your car speakers and you can listen to that and just fill your mind with the Word of God. Receive it. There's all sorts of ways. You can jump into a small group, one of these Sunday school classes, and jump in and, and say, I'm going to submit to the Word of God and get under the teaching of the Word of God with a group of people so that we might receive the Word together. James wants them to know, look, it's, there's a temptation out there, there's a danger out there that you will be deceived. But if you don't want to be deceived, receive the implanted Word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. God, we thank you for your word. It is a wonderful gift, life-giving gift. We don't worship the word. We worship you. But you've given us your word. And Lord, we thank you for it. God, teach us, make us people that are quick to hear and slow to speak, that we we wouldn't be so quick to have to have our opinion heard. And God, as a result, change us, make us slow to anger. Help us to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. God, teach us, make us people that are receiving the word of God with meekness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to close out our service a little differently today. We've got communion that we're going to celebrate together. And we do this a little bit differently if you're here for the first time. Um, Lots of churches, nothing wrong with that at all. They distribute the elements back to you. But one of the things we do is we ask for you, if you are a believer, if you're a member of this church, to to come to the table. This is a way for you to, to make this meaningful. To not simply sit passively and take a plate and, and just go through the motions, but to actually come and think about what's happening here. That when we come to this table, there is bread and there is juice or wine. There's not really wine, but there's juice here. And, and we come to this, and those elements symbolize the body and the blood of Jesus. And that when we do this, when we take the bread and we take the juice, we take that cup, we are remembering the sacrifice of Christ. That he died, he lived, and he died in our place. And that if you're a believer here, you're saying, look, this doesn't save me, but I want to remember what he did. I want to remember what he's done and what he's doing. And and one day he's going to come back, and we won't be doing this anymore. Instead, we'll be sitting down with him. And so if you're a believer here, if you remember this church, we want to invite you in just a moment when Ethan comes and leads 
you can just get up at any moment and come down to the front and, and take the, the, the elements together. You may want to do it as a family, with a Sunday school group, with just some friends on your row, by yourself, whatever the case may be. It doesn't matter. But if you're a believer, let's make this meaningful. And when you line up in the aisles, there probably will be lines in the aisles. It's not a time to chit-chat. It's not a time to, to talk about the, the horse race, or it's not a ta- time to talk about the NBA finals or, or the weather or any of those things. This is a time where we probably don't need to be talking to one another at all. Instead, we need to be contemplating and thinking about this. The Bible warns about taking this in an improper manner. If you today are here and you have sinned against a brother or sister, I would tell you don't take this until you've gone to them. Make things right. Reconcile with your brother or sister. If you're harboring sin, bitterness, you've not put away these things, spend some time before you come and just talk to the Lord and and know that in Him you're forgiven. But just spend some time there and say, God, I, I just want to be holy and I've not been. So God, please forgive me in these areas. And then come and take freely in the freedom that Christ brings. You can come to either side of the table. You can go on either side. If, if you're here and, um, and you would have trouble getting to the front, uh, we've got deacons that would be glad to bring the elements to you. So just lift your hand and get our attention and we'll be glad to, to bring the elements to you. Um, we want this to be a family, a family experience today. We are a family in Christ. When I said to those children in, in the waters up there, it's my privilege to baptize you as my sister or as my brother. We're family. We're adopted into the family of God. And so let's do this, remembering, proclaiming the death, the burial, the sacrifice of the, the, and the resurrection of Christ. Amen? Amen. Ethan, you come lead us. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.